Good morning, church, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with each of you this day. It's good to see you here in worship, along for those who are joining us online. Today, we are continuing our Lenten worship series entitled 316. Now, over the past weeks, we've been exploring one of the best-known and beloved verses of the Bible, John 316, phrase by phrase. I've gotten a little tickled because many of us have memorize this verse, but from different versions. And every week we try to recite it together, and inevitably there are all sorts of different versions going on out there, and sometimes I mess up as well. But we're going to put it on the screen. This is the New International Version, and I would invite you to recite it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And today we're focusing on that phrase, shall not perish. Every believer here has a unique spiritual pilgrimage. We've all come to God in our own way, and it shapes both our souls as well as our witness. I've shared with some of you before that I was born and raised in the Methodist church. I grew up at Columbia Drive Methodist Indicator, where I was confirmed accepted Christ as my Savior, and first heard the call to the ordained ministry. Then in ninth grade, we moved to Cherokee County and joined a small country church called Little River Methodist. And there I attended Sunday school, went to worship, fifth Sunday night singings, and revivals. And especially at the revivals, there was almost always an altar call at the end of the service. And in order to encourage people to come forward, the revival preachers would talk about the glories of heaven and the agonies of hell. And they would end with saying, if you on your way home tonight died in your car, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you will spend eternity with God? That was a pretty sobering thought for a 16-year-old who had just gotten his driver's license. Admittedly, I had not done any serious sinning up to that point, But it was a strong enough message that I went to the altar multiple times just to be sure. Today we are talking about what happens on the far side of life. What occurs when we appear before God's throne? And what does it mean to hear Jesus talk about shall not perish? The broader backdrop of this that we have to look at is the Christian doctrines of afterlife, and of heaven, and of hell. And although these are important doctrines in the Christian faith, it's something the contemporary church seldom talks about anymore. And I think there are a variety of reasons for that. In part, it may flow out of the experience that I have, and maybe you have had as well, where we were raised in churches where heaven and hell were the ultimate carrot and stick to get people to the altar. And as an adult and as a pastor, I have been very hesitant to try to get people into heaven by scaring the other out of them. And so that's part of my own personal struggle, maybe it's yours as well. A second reason the church oftentimes does not discuss this is if you talk about heaven, you've got to talk about the alternative. And while we know what the Bible says, most of us have a lot of questions when it comes to eternal salvation and damnation. The third reason we don't talk about this much in the church is I think that the church, along with our culture, 
has a love affair with the world. We live in a land of materialistic abundance, and it's easy to see ourselves as earthly settlers rather than heavenly pioneers. Church hymns and songs reflect this. I recall singing from the Cokesbury Hymnal and the Spiritual Life Songbook growing up a lot of hymns and songs about being headed towards heaven. You pick up a modern hymnal, not so much. Maybe we've fallen in love too much with this world and not enough with the world to come. And the fourth reason is that there's so much we don't know. There's certainly the biblical witness of what happens after death, but with the exception of Jesus, nobody's returned with a travelogue. Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a German theologian, once said, when it comes to the Bible, it gives us very little information about the temperature of hell or the furniture of heaven. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, No eyes seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so we're reduced to trying to describe the indescribable. And I will tell you, by the end of the sermon today, we'll probably have more questions than we do answers, but you cannot avoid this phrase, shall not perish. During the Lenten season, I have referred oftentimes to Max Licato's book, 316, The Numbers of Hope. It's what inspired uh, the series for Lent. Licato is a senior pastor at Oak Hill Church in San Antonio, Texas, and he has written extensively a number of different Christian books. I love how he turns a phrase. I've got several of his books on my shelves in the office, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that when I'm pulling from various sources, those persons do not always have the same theological background as me. Licato is a Church of Christ pastor. And his Calvinistic theology sometimes differs from my own Wesleyan theology. And when it comes to this phrase, shall not perish, Licato spends nine pages in a chapter that is entitled, Hell's Supreme Surprise. Now, there's a catchy title. And he talks about how 13% of the verses that have Jesus speaking talk about judgment. And two-thirds of the parables deal with appearing before God. And the Cato's theology is fairly traditional Christian theology that in the afterlife, everyone faces judgment. In fact, the United Methodist Book of Discipline contains a very short section called Articles of Religion that are the basics of our faith. And it says this, We believe all people stand under the righteous judgment of Jesus Christ both now and in the last day. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, the righteous to life eternal, and the wicked to endless condemnation. To be totally honest with you, and I usually try to be in sermons, I wrestle to this day with how do you reconcile divine love with eternal condemnation? And I've got to tell you, after six decades of life and four decades of ministry, I thought I would have all this stuff nailed down by now, that I would know exactly what I believed about everything. And what I discover is, as you continue in the Christian pilgrimage, there are some things that become essential and central, and those beliefs have become stronger in my life. 
But there are other things that, if not peripheral, at least are not central, that I still wrestle with and am not sure about. And when it comes to heaven and to hell and what those realities are like and what God will do on that final day of judgment, I'm not sure. The reality is the Bible is not always clear about what the afterlife will be like. I do take some comfort in this. There is a God, and I'm not God. You ought to be real happy about that as well. But let me say it for you. There is a God. You're not God. And I'm willing to leave some of these things up to the Lord God Almighty. I will remind you, Jesus said there's going to be a lot of surprises on that final day. And so in the interim, how do we prepare ourselves? Well, I would like to talk briefly about the case for hell, but also the case for grace. On the one hand, the Bible does talk about hell fairly extensively as a place of eternal alienation from God. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, primarily in our traditional services, if you ever do it from the hymnal, you may notice after crucified, dead, and buried, there is an asterisk. Asterisk. There's that little starry thing. And at the bottom of the page, there's a phrase we usually don't use in the United Methodist Church, descended into hell. Traditional Christian theology believes that after the crucifixion and Jesus' death, he descended into hell to preach the gospel to those who had died beforehand. And sometimes in classic theology, this is called the harrowing of hell. As Jesus turns over, defeats, abolishes the power of hell and of death. In his teaching, Jesus oftentimes used the word Gehenna, and it gets translated as Hades or hell in the Bible. Gehenna was a valley southwest of Jerusalem where in Jesus' time it had become a dumping ground for Jerusalem's refuse and sewage. It was also the place where animal carcasses, the dead bodies of paupers and criminals were also placed, and you can imagine what an abhorrent sight it was. And so there were fires that were kept burning in order to consume the refuse. And in order to feed the flames, they fed them with sulfur or with brimstone. Gehenna. What a graphic image of what we consider as a literal hell. And it describes the horrors of condemnation. And let me stop here and say for a moment, I do believe that this concept appeals to our innate sense of fairness and equity. As I look around the world, there ought to be consequences for people who are evil and who hurt others. Do you want to spend eternity next door to Caesar Domitian, Vlad the Impaler, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or Vladimir Putin? I don't think so. And I've got a friend of mine who is better versed in theology than I am who likes to say, I struggle with a belief in a literal hell, but I have a growing list of people who need to go there. (laughs) We get that part of it. But now hear the case for grace. John 3.16 that we have spent weeks upon is saturated with God's love and God's grace. For God so loved the world... God gave 
that God sent, that God gave his son to come into the world to save us. If you extend to verse 17, it talks about how Jesus' mission was not to condemn the world, but to seek to save it. And there are moments in my life where self-righteously and judgmentally, I can look around the world and I can pick out people who are much worse than I am who deserve judgment. But brothers and sisters, we're all in the same boat. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In God's view, there is no distinction nor difference. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's why God sent his son so that we could be saved through Jesus. And we come to the foot of the cross and we see the extent of God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace for the world, but also for you and for me and for the very people we think unlovable that we would like to exclude from heaven's gates. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. And we're going to end the series with that last phrase of John 3, 16, have eternal life. It's almost like we plan these things. And if you join us, and I hope you do next week, either in person or online, I'll go ahead and give you a preview of the sermon. I'm going to talk about the resurrection. I know. <laughs> and we're going to talk about life and abundant life and everlasting life. And to tip my hand a little bit further I'm going to say something I often share with the congregation. Eternal life isn't pie in the sky by and by when you die. Eternal life begins the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. With that reality, when you talk about heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal condemnation, there are persons right now that are living in hellish situations who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, this becomes the mandate. It becomes the driving force in our lives, both for ourselves as well as for others. For ourselves, why would you put off any longer the joy of eternal life? To accept Jesus as Savior, but also to go through that process that is ongoing in life of declaring him Lord, of granting every aspect of life to God, realizing that when we cling tightly to these things of the world, we're missing out on heaven's treasures and heaven's joys. And it's a mandate not only for ourselves, it's also a mandate to go out into the world to share it with others. It is the absolute foundation for evangelism and for missions. Because people are dwelling in hellish situations out there. They desperately need to know about God's love, grace, and mercy. And you're called to share that with the world. And when I say the world, don't think globally. Think about your world. Those people you come in contact with. That sphere of influence you have with family and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students that you can share through word and through action and example what God has done in your life. It is the very foundation driving force of evangelism, but also of missions. Any of you who have ever been on a mission trip, who have ever assisted others, who have ever gone to a third world country or done a habitat build, there are people who need our help. Not only in the sharing of the gospel through our words, but through the example of our life, meeting both their spiritual and their physical needs. 
and to realize that God's will is that no one will perish because every one of us are beloved children of God. On the very first Sunday of Lent, we began the series by looking at the broader context of John 3, 16. And looked at John 3, 1 through about verse 21, where Jesus encountered Nicodemus at night. And there's that famous exchange where our Lord says to the Pharisee, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Then in the 15th verse, Jesus said something rather obscure that we explored that day. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. That's the reason you never see a John 3, 15 sign at a football game. Nobody knows this story, but Nicodemus would have recognized it. You may recall it's from Numbers chapter 21. When Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and the plan was to go straight to the promised land. But instead, they began to mumble and grumble, moan and complain, and they finally said, we want to go back to Egypt. Remember what God did? As a, a circumstance, as a, because of consequence of their actions, God sent countless fiery serpents into the camp, and the people immediately repented of their sin. And they were crying out for salvation. And God told Moses to create an emblem, a symbol of the serpent, lay, raise it up on his staff, and everyone who gazed upon it would be saved. And on the far side of the cross, the church looked back to Jesus' words and understood. Understood that the Son of Man was lifted up on a cross and that all who come to him will be saved. Today we stand on the threshold of Holy Week, a Palm Passion Sunday, and we will rehearse in the coming days those final moments of Jesus' life. We will sit at the table on Holy Thursday. We will hear the words of betrayal by Judas. We will see Jesus tried and suffer and crucified and dead and buried. And we will stand amazed at God's grace extended to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that reminds us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and that we're called to the foot of the cross this day, every day, but especially during this holiest of weeks to see the height and width and depth of your love for our lives. Grant us the grace to accept your grace and grant us the grace to extend it to others. In the name of Christ our Lord, we make our prayer. Amen.